א', פי, צן, גמור, Andre, what the heck is going on? It's been so long. Yeah, I know, man. I thought I'd been dropped from the team. Well, nearly after that Sabbath, <laughs> that Sabbath debacle. <laughs> Did you hear the one with Brandon and, um, and the follow-up yesterday? Well, you know, our yesterday um, with, with Chris? Uh, I didn't hear the one yesterday with Chris, I haven't heard that one yet, but I don't pod on the, on mm. the Sabbat, bro. Ah, now we got a Sabbat all the time, ah, you see, this is... <laughs> no, no, I was just too, too busy getting my head around Genesis 5, that's all. Yeah, that's very nice. Um, the, yeah, I heard the one with Brandon Adams, well, I, I heard most of it, I had to, I ran out of time, mm. um, but I heard like three quarters of it, I think. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so essentially, if I gather what he's what he's saying mm-hmm. is that sixteen eighty nine federalism mm-hmm. is about um, saying that the Mosaic Covenant is. Okay, hang on, because this is yeah. Okay, so just see if I get this right. He's saying the Mosaic Covenant is a separate covenant to the Covenant of Grace. Um, everyone says that, uh, we're, we're all agree in agreement on that. Um, well, it's okay. certainly, certainly everyone in a Kleinian sort of, well, I think just, you know, look, there are even amongst Baptists, um, and what they've called the 20th century view, you know, which I think is fair enough. Um, so here I'm thinking of everyone from like, um, Jubit to Malone to whatever, you know, there's just been that basic adoption of the, hey, there's one covenant of grace, it's ministered in two parts, there's no subservient anything, you know, the Mosaic covenant is basically part of the covenant of grace. And so a lot of Baptists have held that view, and, um, and, and that's where the Kleinian stuff like kicks in for, for, uh, for a lot of, like for myself, I would basically have just modified that view with in the same way Klein modifies typical covenant theology. Um, so would you say, would you say, because I thought that you would say that mm-hmm. the Mosaic Covenant was a part of the Covenant of Grace, but only as a theological category, not as an exegetical covenant. Right. Um, is that not right? We, no, you wouldn't say that. No, it's, it's uh, no, no. It, well, it kind of is and it isn't. Here's what I mean. And it's admittedly difficult to get your head around, but I think it's, uh, it's you know, once you got it, you see what, you see what everyone's saying. Um, so basically you've got, certainly that's true. The Mosaic Covenant is an exegetical covenant on its own right, um, mm-hmm. just like the rest of them. So, you know, that's kind of another another story, another category. Um, but when, we're, when mm-hmm. we're asking the question as to, you know, that theological construct of the covenant of grace, the overarching umbrella, as it were, um, what happens there? How does, how is that um, connected to the exegetical Mosaic Covenant. That, that's really um, uh, the question we're looking at when we start getting into the subservience thing. Because we're saying that in, 
if you're, you know, in some sense, it is okay to talk about it as an administration of the covenant of grace, okay? But only if you're you're seeing it as a a subservient element to the Abraham Abrahamic uh, covenant moving through alongside with it. Um, and so, in other words, it's it's part of the the covenant of grace only in so far as it it it, it subserves the actual gracious covenant itself. So it's a it's a covenant added to that particular um, administration of the covenant of grace, which is more more strictly the Abrahamic covenant running right through there, but like a train track alongside it or beneath it even um, is this. Um, this Mosaic covenant, which is really just given, as Paul says, for the purposes of being a schoolmaster. So the whole thing is yeah. um, Galatians three twenty four, right there. So you know, and I thought Chris was did a really good job in showing, uh, or at least just in, in mentioning uh, in passing what we were talking. He's sort of bringing it back to scripture and going, you know what? Um, Paul does say it, it. The law was given to run alongside, you know, and we need to see that uh, exactly as he says it, and. Um, and so in that sense, the, in the broader sense, like it's all part of this, this thing that God was doing at that time and administering, you know. Um, and so, yes, in that, in that light, it's all part of the, the administration of the covenant of grace. But usually what people mean when they say okay. the mosaic was an administration of the covenant of grace is that it itself was not, as an exegetical covenant, was not uh, a, a covenant of uh, with the works principle. It was a covenant uh, with the grace principle. So they want to see law as an expression of grace, essentially, which is obviously okay. where the disagreement okay. lies. Yeah. So I thought he was saying something more than that. I thought, uh, Brandon, I'm talking about, not Chris. I thought, um, I thought he was saying that it is, is a distinct covenant. Well, what Brandon is like saying, he wouldn't he wouldn't consider the Mosaic Covenant as a covenant of as part of the covenant of grace. It's no, distinct he, from. Oh yes, no. Okay, so now with sixteen and nine fed, they don't have an umbrella. That's the thing. You know, take the umbrella away, and extend um. and extend the. Um, extend the Mosaic Covenant all the way through to the Abrahamic Covenant. So they say that the Abrahamic Covenant was a covenant of works, and um, and all, no, that's of it, mad. all of it's a covenant. In fact, the whole Old Testament. You know, essentially, uh, that we would think of as a gracious covenant, theologically over uh, overarching it, is not ex- in existence. And all you have is the the exegetical covenants that are essentially have a works principle attached to them. So Abraham got what he got okay. because of his work, um, and uh, and so you know Israel gets what they get because of the or their failure of their works or whatever but it's all essentially a works thing and so they would see the when you, this is why it gets crazy confusing I, I was talking to someone on Sunday about this as well and you can see how this point was being a real stickler but but basically so when they say subservient what they mean is the whole Old Testament essentially subserves the new New Testament you know and so the law kind of um, right. is a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ, almost like a dispensational version of it in that sense, you know? I, I mean, I say that kind yeah, of... Yeah, because like, to yeah. a certain extent, that's true. Yeah. But like, to a certain extent, that it has to be true. But okay, so that's interesting. So they're, they're basically rejecting covenant theology. <laughs> I mean... Am, am I wrong? Well, Scott Clark, have you just read his thing? I mean, dude, like, he's, no. just, he's just... Um, coming at everyone but he's making some good points like one of the things he said was to the degree that you can use the administration of the covenant of grace language you're at least in the reformed theology arena 
you know. Um, when you stop using that language, something has changed. And, uh, and, you know, that was really the essence of what he was. It's not that he was by that kind of universally accepting every other Reformed Baptist that would use that language because he'd still have a million other gripes with them as well. But, um, but at least we could play, you know. There was a sense in which we could, we could fight back on yeah. an administration battle or, you know, okay, you know, we're, we're not talking about, you know, to use Brandon's own analogy, you know, where he would talk about, um, um, you know, the, the one person, the one covenant is just changing clothes. And, and so the battle was on, okay, what should the clothes look like in the new covenant rather than uh, that it's a different person entirely. And um, and so, you know, we could play and we could play that reformed kind of theology with, with um, Horton and Scott Clark in some sense. But yeah, now what... what and, um, you know, what they're really gunning for and what everyone's so excited about amongst um, those who have bought into 1689 federalism is that they've uncovered their own kind of reform, the- uh, at least their own kind of covenant theology, which is not in any way like the reformed covenant theology in that sense, you know? Okay, right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is, yeah. It's a bold move. It's a bold move. Yeah, totally. Well, you know, and to be fair, again, <laughs> to them, it is they're looking back at what was uncovered. Oh, at least what is has now been uncovered concerning what the framers of the 1689 were were thinking, um, and so this okay, has, yeah. this has held out a long. It's a nice explanation for that mysterious change in chapter seven of the confession on the covenant, where you just sort of like, why did they do that? Why did they depart so radically from the Westminster there? But the other point that Brandon made, and Sam I know has made this as well, is that you know the reality is that. It, even none of none of the specifics of 1689 federalism are spelt out in the confession itself, um, mm-hmm. which is kind of helpful in in just as as excited as people want to be about this, uh, you know. And I think they're right. I mean, from what I've seen, it's correct. You know, they 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 are they're uncovering a, a real majority view held among the Reformed Baptists like, in that period. They're like discovering authorial intent, really. Yeah, um, well, no, not so much. Maybe not. That's the interesting thing. It's probably the authorial intent was to make it broader than the majority position. Um, oh, I see. You know, in that they actually left some specifics out. And, and this is probably because um, you've got a whole bunch of, well, not a whole bunch, even if it was a minority view, they were quite a small group, and so they didn't want to exclude uh, those among them. I mean, like Gill, for example, would have been excluded. I know he came later, but if he, if his view was in any way represented at that point, which was kind of a fusion uh, of uh, the two, then you know they would want to allow for him to be part of that and that sort of thing. So, um, you know, in that sense, the authorial intent was to go broader than the view that has now been uncovered. But I think just on the heritage angle, you know, we we're like, oh, cool, you know, that's what they actually believed. So, I mean, that's exciting and fun and everything, and I like it and appreciate it from that angle. But I also think, uh, as I've said a few times already, you know, I think there is room in theology to to improve, right? So it's not like just because you've you've uncovered a thing in history, you you are now bound to that thing. Um, If anything, you you then measure it up to to what's happened. And I think, again, like let's say, you know, even in a parallel universe, if you had uh, exactly that kind of covenant theology, that that had been, you know, had carried on as the mainstream, and then you had a guy like Klein come along and tweak it on this area and that area and show some insights. You know, it would it would it would become more, I don't know, nuanced <laughs> and sophisticated as it goes. And exactly. I don't think that needs to be rejected uh, because it's still the same essential idea. You know. Well, yeah, that has to be the case, sir, because you see, 
you see just in the history of creeds and confessions, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. Like things are constantly developing and, yeah. and some aspect that kind of gets ignored in one creed get, has to get developed later, mm -hmm. you know, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. Totally. So, so there has to be, we have to see that. I think it was interesting. I was listening to somebody, one of the podcasts I listened to, I think it may have been the one you just told me about, the Justin Sinner oh, one. Oh, cool. Yeah, Jordan Cooper. Um, so yeah, that's really good. That's a really good podcast. Actually. Mm, and mm. then uh, he's making the point that we often feel like if we can discover what was happening, like in the first and second century, then that would be like almost discovering a pure form of church. But that's not actually the case. There's no. a lot of issues yeah. that the church in the first and second century didn't actually get a hold of. That's right. Yeah. You know, fully. Hadn't, hadn't explored through combating heresy. Mm. You know, they hadn't mm. ironed out the language and the concept. So we actually are in a very privileged position looking back and having been able to learn from all that. Right, yeah. And, um, and so in that sense, the church is progressing. Mm. The church is kind of growing mm. um, theologically, isn't it? And, and you see that, like, you know, when you, you've, you've, you know, you've been to the to kind of churches in the third world where... Um, yeah, they they definitely haven't had the same sort of resources, the exposure to theological learning and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So they've got like a diehard passion for Christ, a willingness to suffer for Him, like a devotion to Him that just nobody in the West has. But um, but they don't have the kind of um, I don't know coherent set of doctrines mm -hmm. in the same way that mm -hmm. we have. Uh, um, so in that sense, like you know, it's okay to say that the church is progressing. So it's okay to say. That we know more now or have clarified a few things since the guys wrote the 1689. Mm, totally. I, I think, um, yeah, and, and you know, uh, Jordan Cooper is probably a good guy to talk about, uh, someone to mention on, on, on this issue. He's done a lot of study in patristics, I know. Um, but then also Sam Aldrin, I was encouraged to hear from Brandon, is kind of more or less on my, on my page. Very, very close, just struggling with a few of the same issues that I'm struggling with. And, uh, I, you know, one thing that I appreciated, uh, just remembering back to, uh, you know, thinking about reading, you know, one of his books where he talks about the developmental nature of theology and how it's an mm -hmm. important idea and how we we are in, in you know, we're better theologians. Uh, let's take mm -hmm. uh, who who's an average. I mean, let's take Wayne Grudem. You know, uh, Wayne mm -hmm. Grudem is not my favorite theologian, but he's a better theologian. No. Just to make the the point provocatively, uh, that he's a better theologian than the Apostle John. Um, and, and the reason for that is not because he's inspired or he gets more stuff right or something like that, but rather because he has he's been able to stand upon you know the the shoulders of of those that have gone before and refine and see the bigger picture uh, in its connection and uh, you know that's a very provocative startling idea yeah couldn't you couldn't you come for like chrysostom or someone less you know just like take a second generation theologian yeah just totally. like you know just just you know bring it down a bit more. all right all right well, i tell you what let's let's make this so much more palatable okay let's say uh let's say michael horton is a better theologian than chrysostom <laughs> Yeah, totally. Yeah, that's so much better. It's well so done. much easier. But you know what? It's I just, better than St. Clement. I just lost all my provocation. All my pro provoking power was gone. Um, but, you know, you get the yeah, point. Well, like, if you've got yeah. an inspired apostle and a really average, well, you know, like a good average theologian guy, 
you know, it makes the point well in that, you know, wow, there is a developing idea here that's, um, that's important. It's, it's as important as the individual doctrines itself. That's not to say we're into new stuff and into liberalism or into like a, a spiraling away from historic orthodoxy. It just means that, you're, you, you know, like in the Reformation, they didn't have enough didn't have enough hands on deck to get to the eschatology, uh, eschatology issue properly. <laughs> and just think about that in, in light of Gerhardus Fuss. I mean, who would accuse Fuss of not being in, thoroughly in the Reformed tradition and yet, you know, having those eschatological insights? And um, and just that's exactly what we're talking about. So to find something back in the day, a document that, that deals with a certain theology that has not yet incorporated uh, the the- <laughs> theological insights of, of guys that would be very good that were to come that weren't going to invent new stuff in as much as they were going to see um, the scriptures uh, with perhaps a, a greater clarity point to those doctrines uh, and and help us to articulate them. I think you know that obviously needs to be incorporated into our view. We can't just we can't just stop there. Um, it's the semper reformanda thing in many ways. I think probably. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that's... I still um, think you should leave the apostles out of it, bro. <laughs> yeah. Well, in, you know, were the apostles inspired? Their letters were inspired. What were they? Well, they're, they're, you know, what? what they wrote was inspired. Were they themselves inerrant as individuals, you know? And, and, oh, okay. Yeah. Search me. Yeah. So, yeah, they, so you, know, you got to sort of factor yeah, it's that like, it's like the It's like, well, we even wrote ethics today with... Um, uh, say that it's not, you know, the Pope is not infallible in everything. Mm-hmm. Like what he what he tweets could be totally fallible. Right. It's only what he says kind of ex cathedra that yeah. is infallible. Yeah. So, yeah, the difficulty though is like, um, yeah, okay, man, that's a big issue. Well, you just brought the Pope into it. I mean, dude. <laughs> Dude, I, I mean, like, I was comparing John to Grudem. You're you're comparing freaking Pope to the apostles. I mean, dude, what, what team are you on, anyway? Well, bro, well, actually, I'm thinking about becoming a, a Lutheran Baptist. <laughs> well, you know what? You know what the cool part is? As a Baptist uh, who is Reformed, you're, you're already kind of, you've embraced the best Lutheran, Lutheran, Lutheran tradition, although they would burst into flames <laughs> hearing me say that. Uh, still, it's true. In fact, to be a Reformed Baptist means... Can you be a Lutheran who doesn't baptize infants? Well, I'll tell you what, to be a Reformed Baptist means you've arrived at the zenith. You've you've reached the apex of all that you can receive (laughs) theologically. You've you've perfected your craft. Only Uh, heaven. Yeah, totally. It's only the only thing to to improve upon now is glory itself. It's so true. <laughs> you know, it, and it, and it is kind of lonely being right all the time and being perfectly balanced and nuanced in your theology at all moments. You know, I did. What was I? What was I reading the other day? I, I was telling you about it in in an off off uh, record conversation. Mm-hmm. I was reading something where it was like covenant theology, and there was a lot of trouble. And I was saying like actually. Um, Reformed Baptist gives you, does give you just the the right nuances to be able to back out of some of the other things that oh, totally. give guys loads of trouble. Excellent. Like the little ex- exegetical problems and things that guys run into in covenant theology, namely Galatians, you yes. know, like the whole book is a big problem for classical <laughs> Reformed theology, Reformed covenant theology. Totally. And so like being a Reformed Baptist, you can just totally like expose that. So, oh man, hey, totally. no, that's cool. Not only that, but you just, um, you don't have to worry about, you know, you have to swallow the reformed identity pull up front, 
rather than have to like spend the rest of your life trying to find out, you know, if you're still in the stream, you just go ahead and disqualify yourself up front, you know, and then you just live at peace with the actual Bible itself. You just, you know, you're like, okay, sweet. I'm never going to be, never going to be drinking the reformed Kool-Aid ever. Like they just won't let me in, you know. Yeah. But, it's, well, I, I was talking to an Anglican the other day mm-hmm. and, you know, and he was asking me, like, so are you are you reformed? So I was like, yeah, I'm sadly reformed, but I'm Baptist as well. So he said, ah, so not really reformed then. Yeah. And do you know what my reply to that was? What? Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because in some sense, amen, you know, like, the, it, yeah, and that's yeah, kind of totally. what you were just saying a bit earlier, like, like, who needs that extra stuff that we don't think is good anyway, you know, like, in the, I suppose yeah, that, that's yeah. what makes us. I mean, us... If, 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 if believing Galatians 3 at the sort of plain, plain sense reading of the text means I'm not reformed, then I'm happy to go along with it. Mm, mm, totally. Now, on that point. But it is nice when you find, it is nice when you find, um, like systematicians though, who find all, all the stuff out, um, you know, cause I've kind of reached these conclusions just by sort of going from the text up. Mm-hmm. Whereas I know that there are other guys who are, who are hammering the stuff out. So it is a comfort when you kind of have finished studying a passage and you think, no, that doesn't match up with that bit of theology. And then you've got a guy who's come from the other perspective from the top down mm-hmm. and has arrived at the same conclusion. And that there's quite a lot of um, reassurance in that. Oh, did you hear oh. that? Oh, Oh, what was that? That was the sound of glory. Amateur hour, bro. <laughs> no, just Lagos. <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> I, I'm offended that you would think Lagos is amateur hour. I thought I thought that that was like uh, you know windows opening up or something. <laughs> it's the Lagos jingle. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't it make Did you, you get fe- your you know? It makes you feel good. Did you get good. your your Pentium one out with you know? <laughs> <laughs> It's the Lagos jingle, bro. It makes you... you I mean, I can't... You got Windows 6 on there or something, bro. Dude, you know what? I actually can't... I'm I'm shocked that you didn't immediately recognize that because I... uh, I'm sure that's... Oh, no. I wouldn't even get enough dopamine to prepare a sermon if that didn't happen. Like, I I would not be able to prepare a sermon without the Lagos jingle. You know, it just wouldn't wouldn't get off the ground. You know, <laughs> <laughs> I just just be looking blankly at a page. Like, where's the jingle? Where's the jingle? How do we how do we get how do we get started here? Exactly. Oh boy. Hey, so on um, Galatians, I've just opened like us to um, to check out Galatians um, three. Um, um, we we talked about this the other day, um, and you made a good point that. Um, you know, basically, um, if you believe that the Mosaic Covenant is truly and properly only to be construed as a covenant of grace, um, you know, with, with no subservient element to it, it's just, it's just a um, the law is grace, gracious, you know, and 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 God mm-hmm. has now redeemed the people; He's showing grace by giving them a way to live. And that's just the end of it, you know. And then you've got the Levitical mm-hmm. stuff going on, obviously showing the gospel and stuff. And, uh, you know, you're kind of in the same camp. And you mentioned um, uh, the Horton, uh, who's the guy in uh, Tipton debate, and, um, you know, how, how he has to skirt around the issue to try and show that. Uh, but then, you know, you, you mentioned, I think this is really good, that you're sort of, you're in the same camp, ironically, as the 1689 Federalist who needs to look at, that same passage of scripture in Galatians 
and has to argue the exact opposite that it's a covenant of works with no gracious component involved at all. It's only all just a covenant of works from Abraham all the way through to to uh, mm-hmm. Moses in the New Testament. And, um, and you know, you're going to have these two sides that are going to actually be warring on the same problem and that Paul doesn't allow for either view because there has to be yeah. some sort of covenant of grace that did not get annulled by a covenant of works, which is the whole yeah, so point. Both of them, ironically, are sort of conflating the covenants that Paul's trying to keep distinct. Yes, good way to put it. Excellent. So um, let's go and take a look at that uh, and, and just read it through. Let me just try and find it here. Um because we are essentially wanting to, I mean, you know, in some sense, the whole thing is connected to the to the book. And so you've got to look at this every time and see the whole theme. But, you know, just trusting that whoever's listening uh, will do that. Um, you've got Galatians 3.15, where Paul breaks into this thing. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made mm-hmm. covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. There are a few things there. Um, you know, he's, he's saying, um, all right, guys, now listen, you're claiming that um, you're being truly Jewish by wanting to uh, add to the cross these ideas of works and, and, um, and, and circumcision and rights and, and whatnot to, to be in right standing with God. And you're claiming that mosaic sort of period as your, as your basis for that. But you, I'm taking you, Paul says, back even further than that. I'm, I'm making you look at the true Jewish origins uh, in um, in Abraham and showing you that that mm-hmm. covenant came a little bit later or 430 years later than the one that sort of started it all off. And at that at that level, everyone agrees, right? Like everyone, everyone sees that. We all see mm-hmm. how Abraham is the father of the Jews. The Federalists agree with that. The, you know, the, the, the truly reformed guys will, will agree with that. Um, but then he doesn't allow us to keep just going in agreement because verse 16, um, he says, uh, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. Um, it does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And I think everyone's in agreement there. Um, and to your offspring, who is Christ. I mean, this is all, we get the singular, we get There's the There's not a lot of wiggle room there. No, no, everyone's kind of seen Verse 17, it. I think, is, is, is key. Is key, yeah. So basically, you know, he's just, just to build up to it, though, we're all on the same page that ultimately this is all pointing to Jesus, and Paul's making that point, and he's connecting it to his gospel. Everyone's agreeing with that. Uh, verse 17, mm-hmm. though, this mm-hmm. is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For Mm -hmm. if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Um, Mm -hmm. Okay, so there he's setting up that antithesis that everyone who reads the New Testament knows well, you know, our salvation's got to be by law or by by grace can't be by both. If it's one, not, if it's one by the one, it's not by the other. Uh, it's what theologians have called this uh, problem of antithesis. And so, you know, the big issue is if if there is a gracious covenant in the Old Testament, it couldn't have come by the law. It must have, you know, or and grace. So Paul doesn't allow for that. So immediately that leaves the guys who want to make the whole thing one big covenant of grace 
um, it puts them on the back foot because they have to explain yeah. how that works. can do. Yeah. yeah. And um, I mean, I don't know if you can remember. What, I, I honestly could not follow Tipton's argument. I tried. No, no, I mean, he ended up in Corinthians. Like, it was just, if you have to go <laughs> to Corinthians to explain Galatians, it's not, it's not going well for you. That's but, so true. Um, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think, I think what is clear there is that there are two covenants in view. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got one that's established mm-hmm. by the promise covenant. Right. And then you have the law covenant. Mm-hmm. which is established 430 years later. Mm-hmm. And the one, it isn't a modification of the first, mm-hmm. which I think is the argument here. Mm-hmm. It, it, you can't do that. He's saying it's just, you know, it's against, it's against legal common sense. If you, if you create another covenant 430 years later, it says, oh, by the way, I'm adding a few qualifications or a few conditions. Yes. Um, that's just, it, it, would, it would render the first one void you would have to set up a new covenant yes and that's what he's saying it is a, it's a distinct covenant but it seems to be he seems to be saying at least at this point there are two of them yeah. and the one does not set aside the other so the promise is still standing and running simultaneously to uh the law mm. um but the law hasn't altered the the promise which is why when he when he goes on um it's really important because he describes the law as being a temporary, so it's it's a distinct covenant. Right. It's a temporary covenant, mm-hmm. and it's a subservient covenant, yeah. covenant, which is what you get to in yeah. it's sub, uh, it being the the schoolmaster kind of thing. Right. It's sub in that it's under it's 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 for the purposes of of serving, as in pointing to to this um this this grace that uh, has been present all throughout. Um, the whole. The whole thing that that leaves, I mean, you think about the 60 to 89 Federalist view, they would want to argue that the Abrahamic covenant is a covenant of works. The Mosaic covenant is a covenant of works. They read this, they go, yep, we understand they're two different covenants, but they're both covenant of works. Uh, covenants okay, just, of work. you have to explain that to me. Like, how could you walk away from this with any notion like that? Yeah, well, like, where yeah. would you even begin to get that from? Well, they would say that uh, if you go to um, Genesis 15, uh, you see that because of Abraham's obedience, God would fulfill the promises. Okay, all right. And then, of course, the circumcision thing, you can be cut off from it. But here you have Paul's apostolic interpretation of Abraham, Mm -hmm. and he's clearly refuting that idea. Um, yeah, I, look, and, and so years with just to play uh, devil's advocate. Look, I'm on your side, just so anyone's listening. <laughs> Please yeah, don't yeah. get confused. Okay. I'm, on, I'm on Andre's side, but but just to try and draw this out a little bit, um, as as and to be as fair as possible to what they're saying, they would um, they would, as I understand it, because this is where I really got stuck when Sam Renan came down um, to take us through this. But um, he he would essentially say that in the in the um, the typology of the Abrahamic covenant, all right, there was a, mm-hmm. you know, and I'm kind of paraphrasing the kind of language you would use here, but there is a a, a strong element of promise, okay, um, and that obviously had to do with you know the seed who was Christ and and, and the whole deal, um, and so that 
was not the primary element in the Mosaic Covenant, where the typology had to do primarily to do with uh, the echo of the garden and, you know, the law and, you know, um, the condemnation. Or, in you know, just to keep it as broad as possible, um, in some sense, what he would argue is that the promise idea is more prominent in the Abrahamic Covenant than it is in the Mosaic. And so that that, that distinction yeah. on its own is enough to create this thing in Paul's mind, which which then would uh, connect it to, to the gospel and allow them to see that, in fact, you know, Paul is doing exactly what has always been done. Now, even as I say that, and I'm, hoping, I'm genuinely trying to represent that properly, and, um, you know, be more than happy to hear anyone who wants to correct me if any of the guys are listening to this, <clears throat> but... That's that's uh, my understanding so far, and it, that's why it leaves it in such a pickle because that's to really nullify what Paul is doing here. Uh, his whole point is to go. Um, well, it, it's if, look to use the. Let's try moderate. Uh, make that more moderate. Like it definitely softens the force of what Paul could be doing here um, because <laughs> <laughs> you know in, in our yeah, view, you're going too far the other way now. Now you just well in um, our view we're saying listen. Um, <clears throat> You know, Paul is saying grace that was present in the covenant made with Abraham um, is my gospel. And the the Judaizers are coming along and misrepresenting the law in there. And that essentially they're saying it's part of the covenant of grace. Uh, we're saying that the law was subservient to that main element of the covenant of grace in the Abrahamic covenant. That is the gospel. That is, um, that's why the Judaizers are wrong. And that's why you shouldn't do what they're telling you to do. So, I mean, you know, the force of that is tremendous. If you, if you think about what he's saying in those terms, um, and, you know, just gets is it, is it in part because a lot of people think that the Galatian heresy is just straightforward works salvation <laughs> rather than faith and works salvation? Maybe. So sometimes I think pe- people get into their minds mm. that what's going on with the Galatians mm. is that there's some... Sorry? Yeah, no, go for it. Uh, is that some some guys are walking around there saying, "Listen, it's through works that you have to, you know, you have to obey Moses to be saved," mm, mm. Um, which is only half of the story because mm. they are in there as Christians, which means obviously they the Christians are they are saying things like, "Sure, you're believing in Jesus, but you you also have to obey," mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Totally. So it's 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 the whole the whole issue in Galatia is not faith or works. It's faith and works yep. versus faith alone. Yeah, completely. Like that. That's that's the whole issue. Yeah. So to to interpret it that way, I mean, putting aside everything else we could say about you know hermeneutical method. Yeah. But. Uh, <clears throat> You know everything else. Putting that aside for a moment, hmm. um, it's just ignoring the actual resp- what Paul is resp- the issue that Paul's responding to. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know his response wouldn't make sense if they're saying faith and law, and you're saying, you know, faith and law. Yeah. Then you're not actually disagreeing with them. Yeah. Well, in their sense, Whereas, yeah. well, like from Tipton's perspective, or the you know, let's say the um, the classic reform thing. Um, yeah, I mean, that's dangerous. I mean, think about what they're doing. They're going, yeah, we kind of agree with the Galatians. 
I mean, at least yeah, the Galatian yeah, Pharisee. Exactly. You know, it's like uh, we want our theology to correspond to that. And then with the other, with from at least this is why I say like the the 1689 Federalist camp is a lot better in the sense that you are um, you're falling in in a good ditch. You're, you're basically saying uh, no. We don't want our theology to conform to the 1689, uh, to, at least to the um, Galatian heresy. But the problem is, you they take away Paul's weaponry to fight it. You know, they basically say, uh, yeah. you see Paul's arguing that it's, uh, you know, hey, gospel, which was part of law, you know, came before law, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and it's just like, and so see, guys, that's why you shouldn't be gospel law, even though I'm appealing <laughs> to gospel law, you know, and it's just, it's, it's really messed up, you yeah. know, whereas you got the sharp reality of, uh, let's just call it Kleinian covenant theology at this point where, where you go, hey, you know, Paul is, is, is smashing the idea of, of faith and works by appealing to a, a covenant of, that, that yeah. was made with Abraham that is exclusively by the promise. I mean, the promise of inheritance was by the ratification of God walking through those pieces, going to do everything, you know, and everything that comes uh, on from that point in in chapter 15 in Genesis needs to be understood in light of God doing everything. Uh, So it can only be in the realm of of a grand covenant typology thing. Um, It's not ever going to be something that challenges the grace uh, principle. And so, you know, as opposed to the mosaic thing where you look at it, it's just so very, very, very clear in that there God was, was you know, giving, adding to the, to the already existing grace principle, a subservient echo of the garden covenant so as to bring them under that condemnation to push them towards grace. Like what a clear thing Paul's arguing then, you know? So he's basically saying you've moved, and he even goes there, like verse 19, why then the law? You know, why then the giving Mm. of the law? Because it's meant to smash you, you know? It's meant to smash Mm. you and and leave you ripped to pieces so that you're clinging onto the cross with all of your heart without any view to these Galatian um, guys who, who tell you that you need to kind of press on with works. You know, you've misunderstood. Yeah, they have essentially misinterpreted the purpose of the law to smash you to death, you know. And and this is the, this is the I mean, to, to take away from the force of that argument from the 1689 Federalist viewpoint is a problem, I think. And then yeah. even the greater problem from the classic reform the, the, uh, theology side is to, is to essentially just go, uh, well, you know, we kind of agree with the with the yeah. Judaizers on this one, you know, which is messed up. Yeah, I mean, it is messed up. So, I mean, the only caveat that saves them is that when they are talking about, yeah, I'm talking about the classic reform. Yes, guys, yes, yes. No, yeah, is yeah, that right. when they when they when they're talking about justification, they're mm-hmm. defining it by faith alone. Yeah. Um. But in essence, at a kind of functional level, mm-hmm. it's almost like it's, I sometimes feel like uh, the mistake of classic reform theology mm-hmm. is to be a bit like Peter, mm-hmm. you know, in Galatians, mm-hmm. who isn't denying it outright, mm-hmm. who knows the truth about this kind of thing, mm-hmm. but is th- through the implication of how they're living mm-hmm. is denying it. Mm. You know, so Peter... Um, refusing to eat with the Gentiles when the Jews are around. Yeah. I mean, you know, they, he's not, it's not, he's not an explicit denial of justification by faith alone, mm-hmm. but it's, it is implying mm-hmm. that Jesus hasn't done something or, or that the cross hasn't done something that it has done. And yeah. so it's out of step with the gospel. And I feel like actually with the results of that, if you have uh, this kind of uh, law as a covenant of grace thing, or as a gracious covenant, mm-hmm. then you, um, 
you end up doing that by implication mm. when you when it, mm. when you when you're talking about the Christian life, you end up saying, "No, of course you're justified by faith alone." But in the Christian life, you actually end up denying that implicitly. Yeah, and they're they're sort um, of un- unintentionally. Totally, they've got a they're saved by an inconsistency in that regard, or, or or a million qualifications, as you say. But you see those things aren't holding properly with <clears throat> with the outbreaking of like federal vision and you know all those kinds of strands theonomy. Yeah, they you could see it's the, a real problem. It's the real it's the it's the necessary sort of flow of their thinking, which is exactly back to where we started with the Galatian deal, you know, yeah. and, um, and and so yeah, I mean like and you, you what, see it. Sorry, go for it. Yeah, sorry. I was just going to say you see it. You see it coming out in the way that they respond to various people. So like the way. Lane Tipton responded to Michael Horton mm-hmm. just shows you all, all that you need to know yeah. about what's going wrong with classical reform theology oh, or totally. the way that um, Mark Jones yes. wrote that book about um, antinomianism. What's it, uh, antinomianism. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's just crying out for a rebuttal, but yeah. like, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's all, of, all the way they respond or the way that they responded to uh, Italian Chavijan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, all of that stuff sort of just betrays mm. that actually at a functional level, mm. when the stuff gets applied, mm-hmm. that's when you see it starting to go wrong. Totally. You know, the way that, um, the way that Kevin DeYoung mm-hmm. can in the same book say, you know, justify by faith alone, so on and so forth, but then also say that you're blessed if you obey, cursed if you disobey. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, in in the same book, mm-hmm. like again, I don't even know how. You know, when it, I mean, it explicitly uses that language mm. in Galatians three thirteen. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Like you're not cursed if you're a Christian. That's the whole point. You can't be. He was yeah. cursed in our place. Yeah. Um, you are blessed. You can't lose that because every blessing is yours in Christ. Mm-hmm. So, like, it's it, you know the, the whole the whole thing. I think in some ways you see it most clearly when they are correcting people they see are at fault. That's when you actually see the error. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I agree. That's a great that's a great point. And um yeah, I mean it's it gets scary. You read through Francis Turretin, for example, and you know, it's just you see the way they set it up. I mean, there are a lot of Latin terms to qualify to keep them from going straight back to Rome on this. But it's yeah. so like it's not going to hold, you know. You, they've bound it up mm-hmm. in these, you know, places, but it's just not going to hold. It's going to break loose. It's going to move in that direction, and uh, yeah, the theology is going to start dictating the practice more and more. And another area you see what you've been talking about there is just in the, you go to a, a reformed church typically, and you know, just at their understanding of the Christian life in practice tends to be very legalistic. And the reason for that is not just because they've fallen into a kind of legalism; it's because it's theologically at the heart. It's not. It's it's hard to understand it in a non-legalistic way if you're understanding the Mosaic Covenant as a covenant of grace, you know. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah. Anyway, so all to say, that's not what Paul's Paul. Can't, he's not allowing for that. He can't. You can't no. have the Mosaic Covenant as a covenant of grace directly. You can have it as. And a, you can't a, have the Abrahamic as a covenant of works. No, you've got to be um, sensitive to what Paul's saying there, and um, you know, mm-hmm. f- forget where that leaves you in terms of. Reformed identity, you know, um, but just make yeah, sure that you, you get close to that passage.
message because that is a key text. And it's, you know, it's too forceful to let go. It's got the language of ratification. Mm-hmm. So you've got covenant there. You can't, can't even go Lutheran at that point because you've got a covenant involved. Yeah. Um, you, you know, you've got this text brings it all together. I would say that Jeremiah 31 and this passage right here are probably the most important passages uh, to get the greater system mm-hmm. right, you know, along with um, just, just uh, you know, going on what, what is currently um, on view in, in covenant theology. So anyways, uh, that's turned into a decent discussion. Um, and I suppose we're calling this, you know, just walking the line on that. You want to make sure you're doing a good uh, not just a balancing act. You're not. You're not just trying to find a via media between two uh, viewpoints. You're trying to really, I suppose, keep close to uh, the text and let that dictate your mm-hmm. system of theology. Um, good, awesome. Thanks for that, bro. Nice. Yeah. No. Good chat. Awesome.